Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. My friend's mom had make your own sandwich night. You talk about a sham, like she's outsourcing the whole meal and the kids are like, yay, make your own sandwich. I just have to scramble some eggs, you sucker. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger and I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo. On this episode, we'll be talking with my friend John Acuff, author of Finish, Give Yourself the Gift of Done. This is a book about perfectionism, what it does, the harm it causes, and what we can do to navigate through it, we'll explore a concept called the planning fallacy and how overachievers like many of us shoot ourselves in the foot before we even begin, a concept called strategic incompetence, why you should deliberately suck at some things, and we'll uncover secret rules, what they are, how they're made, and how these invisible scripts affect our lives and what we can do about it. So enjoy this deliberately imperfect episode with John Acuff. So tell us about your new gig here, because Do Over is what we heard about before. You had that book about starting. Now you got a book about finishing. Dare I say a little predictable, but here's the problem. You got a book about starting. Obviously something did or did not happen now that you have a book about finishing. So what's going on here? I had so many people come up to me and go, hey, no offense, I like your book, but I've never had a problem starting. I start a million things. Starting is easy. How do I actually finish? And two years ago, I didn't have an answer. And so that's what kind of kicked off this idea was, all right, well, why do 92% of New Year's resolutions fail? Like, why do people get P90X and do four days? Like, why do diets fail the third week of January? And so that's where this book came from. I thought the start was the most important thing. And it is important. It's just not as critical as the finish. Like, nobody gets a medal in the middle of a race, or they shouldn't. If culture's doing its job, you shouldn't reward middle. You should reward finish. That's true. But Our psychology kind of doesn't want to do that a lot. I think every person has unfinished stuff that they kind of have a little bit of shame over. High achievers have this even more so, I've noticed. And maybe that's just anecdotal data because that's who I'm surrounded by, these overachiever, you know, law school nerds and entrepreneurs. But it seems like people who do really well in life generally also have a lot of unfinished stuff. And you hear about it all the time. It's an element of shame. Everybody's got that skeleton. Everybody's got P90X, or as I like to call it, P4X, because that's about how long I lasted. Exactly, until you get yoga. And then like in the 90s, everybody had Bowflex. And they were like, I'm gonna get ripped with this thing. It's got like limbs and like bows. And now you use it to dry laundry in your garage. I think part of it is that culturally speaking, we celebrate the beginning and we say things like, well begun is half done which sounds good on Instagram and like an entrepreneur is like, hey, and buy my webinar, you know? And then you go, what does that mean? If a doctor said to you, as soon as I've made your first incision, I'm half done with your surgery. You'd be like, well, that's not how anything goes. Like, where did you get your degree? 
And the other thing is like, we go, the hardest part of any journey is the first step. You're kidding me. We have launch parties, Jordan. There's no middle party. I've never been to a party where the guy was like, hey, it's the suckiest part of the project. We're going to have a middle party. We celebrate the beginning. We ignore the ending. And then in the middle, we quit. Yeah, there's launch parties. There's no, I'm done with my book tour party. The first step is a dream, dude. And like Derek Sievers talks about this where the problem is if you tell somebody your goal the wrong way, you actually don't do the goal. So what happens is I go, Jordan, I'm going to run a marathon. And you give me pre-congratulations. You go, dude, you're so brave. I couldn't do that. You're so disciplined. And I get dopamine and I don't actually run because I got enough dopamine. The whole thing drives me nuts. It's true because we're really getting the validation we were looking for by getting that pre-validation. People get insulted, but I very rarely will do a new podcast. And the reason I won't do one is I don't know the stats. You probably do. The majority of podcasters quit in X amount of months because it's hard. Jason, what are the stats? You have to hit 13 episodes if you're ever going to see 14, but everybody drops before 13. The idea of doing a podcast is so easy. The reality of doing a podcast is not as easy. I'll tell you right now, I have the same policy. People go, I would love to include you in my launch. And I'm thinking, I would love to give that opportunity to anyone else. I used to do that. I used to go, great. Wow, I'm really flattered. And it still is flattering that somebody thinks of you first. But the problem is, out of 10 launches, nine of them would go, oh, yeah, I never actually made it to launch. Or I launched with all the episodes that I did, and then I decided that I was gonna write an ebook or do a webinar or, you know, oh, I'm still working on it. And I'm like, I recorded that with you a year ago. What are you working on? And the answer is nothing. It's just they thought it'd be really fun to talk to entrepreneurs, and then nothing happened. One question, as soon as I saw this book, I thought about this, and I gotta ask, did you plan to write a book about finishing at the time or did you actually end up writing the book about finishing as a result of all of this stuff about starting and then not actually finishing yourself? It was through the experience of, I felt like I had launched a lot of boats that never got out of the harbor. And I wanted to say to people, hey, wait a second, like, this is fine, this is important, don't get me wrong, but without this piece, you just end up driving in circles and never actually accomplishing the thing. It was frustrating. And as an author, the two things people say to you when you say you write books are, they go, What's your biggest book that I would have heard of? Which is so sad because they've never heard of it. It's like, you never say to a lawyer, name your most successful case. I'll tell you if I agree. Like, it's so humbling. But then they say, I want to write a book because 81% of people want to write a book according to the New York Times and less than 1% do. Wow, 81% of people? I didn't want to write one before. Who are these people? We miss a quarter billion books every year from people who say, I want to do it. And you're right, like, the problem is, scientifically speaking, you remember incomplete goals more than complete. So the things, the open loops, as David Allen would say, that you have in your head, way heavier than the stuff you got done. Like the podcast where you felt like I could have gone better on that interview, you think about that more than the ones where you're like, I crushed that. Me and James Altiger had a great conversation. It was so fun. Like, So it does cost you, dude. It weighs. I think I could get 99 five-star reviews and then someone sends a one-star and I'm like, I'm going to stay up till 3 a.m. writing a reply to this person if I can find them online, which I will try to do for the next 45 minutes. And then you realize, hey, you know what? Some people just don't like pizza and I don't want to be around those people, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like my wife can't stand the Red Hot Chili Peppers. There's a lot of people that like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Sorry about your relationship, bro. We're working on it. Counseling's pretty expensive. That's why I still write books, these lucrative books. In said book, finish, give yourself the gift of done. You mentioned we have the same percentage of being accepted into Juilliard for like playing the bassoon as we do of finishing our goals. 8%. 
Of course, that's 8% of people who apply, but in theory, if you have a goal, you're kind of applying to finish it. 8%, that's really low. That's a 92% failure rate. Yeah, and the crazy thing, Jordan, is we don't change it. Every year in December, we get wooed back into the new year, new you kind of movement. And we're like, I'm going to do it this year. Like, it's going to be different. And if you say to somebody, well, how will this year's diet be different? They go, "Uh, it'll have more beets. Like they might eat something different, but none of their patterns have changed, none of their habits, none of their approaches. I asked the lady at the grocery store, I said, when do people quit their goals? And she said, third week of January. I said, how do you know? She said, that's when we stop selling kale. And part of what happens is you blow it once and then you give up. Like that's where perfectionism comes in. All right, let's talk about perfectionism because this is the uh, Bowser to your Mario in this book here. Perfectionism sounds like something that, okay, we get down on ourselves. When you're in a job interview, you say, yeah, my biggest weakness, I'm too detail-oriented. I'm a perfectionist, right? (laughs) I work too hard. That's why I'm jobless, but I give too much. Tell me though, what is it about perfectionism that's causing us not to finish things? I mean, it makes sense when you say it out loud, but in the beginning, Shouldn't me having an awesome plan actually be a good thing for accomplishing my goals, getting into Juilliard and whatnot? I think an awesome plan is different from perfectionism. Perfectionism doesn't exist. So as a goal- Well, perfect doesn't exist, right? Perfectionism totally exists. Yeah, perfectionism exists. Perfect doesn't. Like Amazon has never sold a perfect book. They've sold millions of imperfect books people are brave enough to finish. Like I made mistakes in every book I've ever written. In one book, I said that Terrell Owens, the football player, had caught a thousand touchdowns. He's caught a hundred. I was off by a factor of 10. And every jock on the planet was like, hey, idiot. And then I made a mistake in do-over. I called the sensei of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles stick instead of splinter. Because stick is the mentor of Daredevil. Splinter is the Ninja Turtle. Every nerd was like, you loser, I can't put... So like, you're always going to have a mistake. But the problem is, Jordan, if you say, my goal is perfect you'll always get close to it, but never close enough. And even worse, if you don't hit it, you'll quit. People that struggle with perfectionism grade on a pass-fail schedule. If you want to lose 10 pounds and you only lose eight, you didn't almost get there, you failed by two and you quit. That's where perfectionism is so dangerous. So you end up with examples like, the weight loss thing is great, right? It's binary. So you say, well, since I didn't lose all 10 pounds, I failed. But isn't the result then fine? You lost eight pounds. I mean, where's the problem? I always say, here's another example. Perfectionists have the messiest cars and offices. And you go, no way, they're deep freaks, they're clean. If they can't clean it at a toothbrush level, they quit the whole project. So there'll be like half coffee cups, there'll be a mess everywhere. So that's where it gets people. And that's where if it's not perfect, you end up writing a first chapter, not liking it. You've done this, Jordan where you have an idea in your head and before you even write it down, you judge it as dumb and you don't even commit it to paper. Is that not normal? Or healthy or good? Of course not. And so that's where perfectionism, it just prevents your stuff from seeing the light of day and from getting better. Like if you had said, I'm not going to do a podcast unless it's perfect, we wouldn't be on this episode. I guarantee this year is better than the first one. I don't even want you to peak the first time. I want you to grow into it. But if perfectionism had been loud enough, you would have done one episode, realized it wasn't perfect, and given up. Perfectionism doesn't have room for growth. That's funny you should mention that. I know so many people who won't launch their show because it's not perfect, which is one of the reasons why you and I don't do brand new podcast interviews and things like that with shows that haven't started yet, one reason. But I didn't fall victim to that. And I'll tell you, the reason was not because we weren't perfectionists. It was because 
we decided that this was a hobby initially and it didn't matter at all because all we were doing was drinking and talking and there's no real way to make that perfect. It took us maybe half a decade before we were like, hey, you know what? This is something we should focus on because it's working really well and we should probably turn it into a product where we release it on the same day every week and maybe actually do one every week. People always go, we're the early episodes of the show, and I'm thinking, don't waste your time. Go to a movie instead. What episode number is this? This is going to be somewhere in the what's. We don't know exactly. In about the 660s. That's crazy. You've iterated every time. You guys sent me an email this time. The first time I was on, you didn't have a mic recommendation. This time, guess what? You're like, hey, it would be better for the listener who we're trying to serve if you had a better microphone. Guess what? I bought the microphone, and now every podcast I do, I use the microphone. and so. You don't get to continually improve if you're trying to aim for perfect. Right, because you start trying to get the perfect on the first try, which, since you're saying is impossible, prohibits us from maybe not trying at all, but at least not going after the first iteration, because why? We're so ashamed that our first try wasn't perfect, we just say, screw it. People don't like to do things that fail. It's voluntary failure, too. Let's be clear, like, a lot of these goals are voluntary. You started this podcast, a boss didn't say to you, Jordan, you got to do this podcast. And so if you're doing a voluntary goal, people don't want to willingly increase their run-ins with failure. Very few of us are like, I love it. I eat it. Like my haters are my motivators. Like it's not enjoyable. And so we try it. We already feel shame about it. Like we bring in the shame of, I wanted to write a book five years ago. I didn't. I wanted to lose weight 10 years ago. I didn't. We already feel bad. And if our first experience is bad, our chances of stopping are exponential. So this isn't about productivity, it's not about time management, it's about ditching perfectionism. You had some funny examples in there of trying to get over perfectionism, like the yummy cracker of perfection. What was that all about? That was weird. Yeah, it was another really successful productivity book that said, imagine your perfect dream or goal as a movie, now then shrink it down to a size of a cracker and imagine yourself eating it, and now that perfect movie is part of you. Like, But you and I, one of the things we have in common is our enjoyment of making fun of bad advice, of where people go like, you are the solution you've always been looking for. What does that mean? No, I'm not. Like In most cases, I'm the problem I've always been avoiding. (laughs) To quote a great American um, poet, Creed, I've created my own prison. So like the idea that like I'm my own solution. So I think you and I are, are have fun swimming through the Instagram experts that haven't done anything If I were you, it would make me laugh when I see people selling courses on how to do a podcast that don't have a successful podcast. Those are pretty much the only people that sell those types of classes so far. What you're doing is you're monopolizing people's dreams. You're taking somebody who's vulnerable and wants to do a podcast and adding a buck onto that dream. And so like stuff like that drives me nuts. But the problem is the goal space is full of stuff that says, have a huge, crazy goal that terrifies you. Like it has to be so big, it makes you cry in like the fetal position. Yeah, the big, hairy, audacious goal. And I'm like, actually, I just have these little ones that I keep hitting. You didn't sit down with AJ and go, okay, I want to do 600 episodes. I want it to be one of the top podcasts. I want publishers to chase me down. And you have new goals every year, every month. But what we found is people who shoot for the moon that go too big almost fail from the get-go. Like I'll have people say, I'm going to run. And I'll say, okay, what are you going to do? And I'll say, I'm going to do a marathon. I'll go, well, have you done a half marathon or a 5K or even just a K? Have you ever run a K? And they're like, no, I got to do the Ironman. I saw a bike commercial. I'm getting carbon fiber and wearing skinny clothes. And then they quit a weekend, two weeks in because it's so overwhelming. 
You're listening to The Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger and his guest, John Acuff. We'll get right back to the show after these messages. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. And now back to Jordan and John. This is interesting because I see some of this in my life in some areas and not in others. So it's perfectionism doesn't necessarily have to infect every area of your life. Do you find that it infects certain areas of your life more? Because there are plenty of people who are doing the perfectionism thing with their podcast, but they have no problem being an awesome athlete and running in triathlons or running a business. What's going on there? I would say for me, like my parenting, I don't try to be perfect because I know it's just friggin' impossible. I'm much more the type of guy that's like, I'll tell my kids, these are the 10 things you're going to talk to a therapist about someday. So let me save you a lot of sessions. Like here are 10 specific things I just blew. And I'm sorry, but like that happened. So like, I don't try to be a perfect parent. I recognize that like I'm constantly growing as a husband. So like the idea that I'll be a perfect, like that ship has sailed as well. But then other things like writing or public speaking, I might fall into that. But part of it is like what you're motivated by, what kind of rules you bring to it. There's a lot of people that have these kind of secret rules. Some would say limiting beliefs is another phrase that they bring to a certain topic like money. Like you and I both know a lot of entrepreneurs that struggle with a fear of success and they get ashamed when they get successful. And you go, the whole goal is success. And like 20 years ago, a mom said to them, people who are rich must have cheated to get there. And so now in their head, they have this thing that like only cheaters win and they self-sabotage right when they're starting to go well. Like it drives me nuts. Okay, let's talk about secret rules. I found this in the book to be quite fascinating. There's a friend of mine, Ramit Sethi, who's been on the show before. He calls them invisible scripts as well. So secret rules, invisible scripts, I don't think that's his term, but these are great because limiting beliefs, it's got too much woo attached to it now and it's kind of like, you can because you believe in yourself. If you think it, the universe will make it possible. And I always think like, tell that to a cancer victim. Like they weren't like, I wish I had colon cancer and then the universe was like, 
you have wished it and here you will receive it. Like, ugh. Oh, man, I wish I could teleport you into a conversation I had with this guy who was in this book, The Secret. And when I was like, what about kids who get cancer? He was talking about how people who get bad things happening to them have done something somewhere. And I'm like, okay, so eight-year-old with leukemia, go. And he was like, I'm hungry. See you later. Yeah, exactly. Or like car crash. Like, you know, it's punishing me. So the book, the the metaphor I use is the cuckoo bird doesn't build its own nest when it's going to have a baby. It hides its egg in another bird's nest. And then the first thing its egg does is hatch first and kill all the other eggs. So then the mother bird dies feeding this gigantic species. Like if your listeners go on to Google and say cuckoo parasitic bird, that Google images are crazy. I say, how does the mom not recognize the lie in the nest? And it's the same way that you and I, if we have a secret rule, don't recognize that there's a lie in our head. A friend the other day, let's talk about the money one. He said, John, that CEO makes $20 million a year. How do you think he sleeps at night? And I want to say probably on Hungarian down pillows and pretty well, like probably after eating some peeled grapes. Like, but in his mind, five million was okay, ten million, now you're greedy. He had this weird, never spoken, never verbalized like system. And so a lot of times goal books treat you like a robot. They go, Jordan, if you do these four things in this order, you will have more productivity. And they forget that like Jordan grew up with a dad that was working on stuff. And Jordan grew up with a mom that wasn't perfect. And we, you know, had a teacher. You had a teacher. Some people like that teacher, it, you fortunately had the strong enough willpower and like personal character to say like, you're wrong about the internet and I'm going to show you. Some people do listen to that teacher and made career choices based off of, I don't want to get involved with the internet. Like it's not going to be around forever. Like better find a safe, stable thing. And we're impacted by that teacher. And so that's what's really fascinating. The secret rules that govern us can either be good or bad then. There were a lot of secret rules where teachers told me, oh, you're not good at this. You're not good at that. And for a while, my parents were being told that I had some sort of learning disability, and they were like, I'm pretty sure he's bored because you're a terrible teacher. And then, of course, the administration's like, parents always think their child is perfect. And my mom's like, I'm a special ed teacher. He's not a special ed kid. He's doing these different things in your class. Like, he wants to write the book in Spanish, not memorize the Spanish numbers. Let him just go do it. And since I was not well-behaved, they didn't go, maybe he's gifted. They were like, nope, he's just a dick. I'm sorry to tell you. But there was one thing when, when we were leaving middle school, I was eighth grade, that's when they separated middle school. There was a teacher that was the French teacher. I was a terrible student in his class, but he was also the football coach. And a lot of the teachers were glad to see me go. And Mr. Wilson was probably glad to see me go too. But when we left, a lot of teachers were like, you know, good luck, see you later, blah, blah. He goes, take care of yourself, man. And he had this look and like this head tilt where I went, oh, wow, he's really worried about me. Like he has stayed up at night thinking, that kid's going to end up in jail or like, you know, I'm going to hire that kid later on to pull weeds out of my garden or something like that. And I'm going to be like, damn. And I remember that to this day because he was worried for a reason. He wasn't a dumb guy. He wasn't some old stodgy French teacher with bifocals telling me to memorize a verb table. He was cool and smart and he had a great way of teaching and explaining things. And he just saw a kid who didn't give a shit and it scared him because he knew it was wasted potential. Maybe I'm just wishful thinking here. And that secret rule was, hey man, you gotta show people what you can do because you're not gonna get discovered over here, man. You gotta work your ass off. And what's really interesting to me about that is, I think you know this, but I think there's times you maybe forget. The crazy thing about a podcast or giving a speech is people come up and they'll say, this thing you said changed my life. And then they'll say something you don't remember saying. They'll say, hey, Jordan, I know you don't know me, but that episode was for me. 
I'm in Oklahoma and it hit me right at home. And I know you didn't think about it, but dude, like that's what's so powerful about like, like I told somebody today, I would pay to do the job I get to do. That's how much I enjoy it. Like I love to speak. I love to write. Like the podcast is successful, but there's great joy there. And part of that joy is, you know, you're reprogramming some things that just aren't true. So you're saying to people, Hey, I know you think you're not talented. Have you tried this? Talent isn't one shape. It's a bunch of sizes. The path isn't one way. And when you have Brian Koppelman on, he's sharing ideas that people haven't thought of before. So like that's what's fun about our job, but that's also the power and kind of destructiveness of having a secret rule that holds you back at the very last second. So how do we find out what the secret rules are and then kind of maybe take the bad ones and do something else with them? Is there a practical here that we can execute? Yeah, let's do three practicals. So one, you look for a pattern. People say that all the time. If you've been in five bad dating relationships, the one thing in common is you. So I would say, okay, your three last kind of mistakes or failures, what happened? Is there a pattern? Is it that right at the last second, you blew up the whole thing or you overshared and it made the conversation really awkward and you left the dinner party early because you felt like you had been too personal with it or you rushed three of your last dating relationships with guys or women that weren't ready for it. So one, I'd look for a pattern. The second thing I would do is I would talk to a real friend, a friend that will say, hey, yeah, I've noticed this. Sometimes you're so close to it, Jordan, that you can't recognize it. It's like when you're in a bad dating relationship and you break up and a month later you go, she was terrible. And and your friends are like, we tried to tell you. Ask a friend, like, I heard this idea on this podcast that I like to listen to. Do you think there's some secret rules I live by that I might not see? Ask a friend and then listen. Whatever they say, your job isn't to say, you're wrong. Like, you're going to get defensive, which is just going to shut them down. The third thing I'd say is when you find one, ask the question, what does that mean? So if I said to you, Jordan, success is bad. And you said, well, what does that mean? I would say, then failure must be good. Like, take the reverse. Like, so failure is good. Or like, I don't deserve a good relationship. So what does that mean? I have to date jerks. That doesn't seem like very good advice. I wouldn't tell a friend that. Like, why do I believe that? So those are three very practical, very easy things you can do. I like that. So essentially, we're looking for patterns. We try to listen for the secret rules that we have. Maybe write them down. Do you ever do that? Your head is messy. Paper is clean. So from your head, take down and go, okay, here's what I think. What does this really mean? And it's big and scary in your head. It's simple and clean on paper. Right. So you can listen for a rule that says something like success is bad. And then you can say, you know, actually this is not a good rule for me. I wrote that down and it doesn't make any sense. Like you said, you can take the extreme reverse and then if you can't spot them or you wanna confirm them, you can have your friends say, I've done this with other friends. We didn't call it secret rules, but I had a friend say, am I a bad person? Because he was going through a hard time. And I said, no, but I'll tell you why people are reacting to you in this way in my observation. And he goes, wow, I never, I told him something about, you know, he's one of these guys who somehow find the negative and he's like, I was just raised by people who are always bitching about stuff. Yeah, so that was his language. That was his language and he goes, I just never thought that anybody else could do it. And he's like, things, you know, really do look bad to me. And I'm like, yeah, but you live in the same reality as your wife and kids. So is it really that bad because they're fine and you're not and you're getting depressed. And that was a strange thing for him because he had to write a new rule, which was, it's probably not that bad, and when it seems really, really bad, ask myself, you know, there was all kinds of sort of tangents and branches that could come off of that, but it really changed the way that he thought, and it was good for me too, because I thought, well, wait a minute, that was so obvious to me, where are my obvious things that I'm not picking up on because I'm in the middle? 
And that's a dangerous game of self-awareness. I don't like when I hear podcasts and they tell you something that's difficult and they go, it's super easy. Just raise like a million dollars next week with your friends. Like this is heart work. So like that's part of it is most gold books address the brain and they forget the heart. I mean, for me, it was I used to have a rule that a speech had to be perfect. So I memorized them. And one time a client pulled me aside and was like, hey, I got some feedback. And he said, 15 people in the review of you said you seemed fake and over-rehearsed and mechanical and with no passion. And they were right. And like, it wasn't fun to hear, but my secret rule of it has to be perfect has changed into, you know, mistakes make you human. Like mistakes have humor in there. They take the tension out of it. Like Yo-Yo Ma talks about that all the time. Like once he's made the first mistake, then he can relax into the the humanity of the performance. And if Yo-Yo Ma is like, you know what? I'm okay making a mistake. I should probably be okay too. So we talked about the planning fallacy, overly ambitious goals, which stop forward momentum. We sort of touched on what you call the danger of might as well, which is like, well, you had a half a cookie on your diet, so you might as well order chili cheese fries now. Yeah, it's the single French fry principle. Like, I had one, might as well go for a thousand. I also see this happen around um, the Super Bowl. People go, I'm going to a Super Bowl party. There's not going to be any healthy food. I might as well. And then that cascades like four weeks later, you're still living off the chili dip rationale of like, I've already broken the diet, like all bets are off. Yeah, it really is dangerous because you find yourself going, well, you know, today I already ate a bunch of crap. And it's like, you do realize that you don't have to eat 8,000 calories because you already had three, right? You can recover the day. Or I mean, but the flip side is when people tell me, I want to run five miles every day. I only have time for three, so I'll do zero. Here's a sign, an easy practical sign you're perfectionist. If you'd rather get an F than a B minus. If the thought of a C plus is worse to you that you don't even try. So that's where you know, like, okay, I'm accepting a zero instead of a C minus because then at least I can say, well, it would have been perfect if I tried. And you want to say a B is way better than an F, like infinitely better than an F. But that's where perfectionism is. Daria Rose, who's been on the show before, she calls this the what the hell effect. Jason, you remember that? Yeah, it's pretty much when you do have that first bite of cookie, you're like, ah, might as well throw in a couple pints of ice cream as well. I'll start tomorrow. Yeah, I'll just go ahead and smoke some crack. Like I've already had a French fry. Crack's next on the train. <laughs> woo woo. Right. Your brain is, re- my brain, I should say, is really good at that. And I think everybody's is too. Motivation wise, in terms of getting this stuff done, or strategy wise, I should say, you have this concept in the book. Well, you have two concepts in the book that I thought worked really well together, which is like the shame versus strategy kind of motivations here, strategic incompetence. I'd love that. Can you tell us about strategic incompetence for a minute? Yeah, so the idea is that you have two choices. And the phrase strategic incompetence came from this book, Two Awesome Hours, and then I started to really research the idea. So most people try to do too much. Most goal-setting books will tell you, Jordan, oh, you have a financial goal, you should have a physical goal and a relational goal and a spiritual goal. Have one goal for each of the seven main areas of your life. Like a lot of us have heard this. But if you were going to learn German, I wouldn't say, Jordan, you should learn six other languages at the same time, Swahili, Norwegian, Spanish. You go, that sounds terrible. And so what happens is we add new goals to our life where what we're supposed to do is say, okay, as I do this new thing during this season, I'm going to deliberately suck at these five things. So as I finish my book, I'm not going to get four months ahead in the podcast. I'm going to be committed, but I won't expect to do these extra things. The parenting one I use in the book is, When we had two young kids under the age of three, my yard was terrible and I did not care. Like it could have been on fire. I was just trying to survive to bedtime. Like my only goal when I had two kids under the age of three was to get to bedtime. And like I always joke, like every parent has put their kid to bed when it's still sunny out. And like 
they can hear other kids playing and your kids are like, why are you using blackout shutters, dad? And you're like, pipe down. It's midnight in China. We're celebrating the new moon. Like, just go to bed. And so I think especially moms, you see this, they talk about mom guilt or mom shame. When you try to do too much and inevitably fail, you feel ashamed or you say ahead of time during the season, I'm not going to do these three things and that's okay. So you basically say, F it. I'm not focusing on these maybe lesser important items and I'm doing so deliberately, not in the moment. I'm planning to not care about the lawn. I'm planning to let the playroom become a nuclear disaster area until they're 11 and I can force them to clean it up. It's just, that's the way it is. Yep, I know there's spiders in there. Oh, well, that's what's happening. It's insignificant stuff, but it can be significant in the sense of, you know, I had a book come out recently. As I tour to talk about it, I don't hold myself to creating great writing. Like I would be such a jerk to myself if I said, I don't care that you're traveling four times a week. You still got to find like, I want you in the terminal D like in between flights, creating great prose. Like, screw that. Does writing matter to me? It does, Jordan. Is this the wrong season for me to think I'm going to get deep writing done? It is. And so that's where I argue that if you're in the middle of budgeting season, like if you're listening to this right now and you're in charge of like preparing next year's budget, you might need to say, my inbox is going to get a little crazy because I got to do the budget. Like the CEO is concerned about the budget, not my email. Is email important? It is. But for this month, for this week, whatever, I'm going to suck at these five things and I'm not going to feel ashamed about it. I love that. I thought this book was really great, especially if you find yourself taking on too much or bailing on things because you won't have time to make them amazing and perfect. And I hear stuff like this all the time. We have this challenge for The Art of Charm, the AOC challenge, for people that are interested at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. We tackle a little bit of the perfectionism stuff where we just have people dive in no matter what. But one of the chief excuses when I ask people why they haven't started the challenge when they write in as big fans of the show is they often say, well, I just want to make sure I can dedicate appropriate time to it. I'm like, look, it's designed to be 20 minutes a week. Yeah, well, you know, I have all of these other things happening and I got a plan to do this and I got a plan to do that. Or people will say things like, yeah, I'm going to come to the course, but I have these 87,000 things that I need to get done before that. Like I got to lose 300 pounds before I give my, and I'm thinking, wow, can I have program info? I got to lose half my body weight before I come in. Don't even ask me for this until you are ready because, and I'm not trying to pick on the weight loss people, it's with any goal. They're trying to do this thing where they're like, I got it all ready. And it's unfortunately a huge time suck. We had to train our sales folks here at AOC, our program intake people, to spot this because there were so many people requesting info and calls. And I said, you got to check on the timeline because half the people that were calling in for program stuff at one point in time were like, yeah, I'm going to do it in like 2023 because first I got to do this, this. Don't even bother us with this because you're calling and talking about doing something because it makes you feel like you're actually taking action when all you're doing is having us do a bunch of work and you're going, I got all the brochures and they're stacked up on the right corner of my desk and they're printed out in color and then I laminated it. It's like, you haven't done shit. This is not a move toward anything. No, and it does make us feel better. I always talk about like, I call them noble obstacles. You know, the example in the book is my friend, uh, his wife's like clean the garage and he goes, I'll do a yard sale. And he's never going to do that. But he gets to go, I can't do it until I have a perfectly planned yard sale. She would love him to throw it all away. We're talking one afternoon on a Saturday. Throw it all in a dumpster, you're done. He's like, no, I got to label it. I got to sort it. I got to figure out what the HOA says about yard sales. I got to da 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 And he feels like, but I'm trying to make us money. 
and it seems noble. So it's the same thing about putting obstacles between, you know, working on your challenge. And dude, did you say it's 20 minutes a week? Yeah, it's like 20 minutes a week. So three minutes a day. It's like when um Brian Regan, the comedian, talked about the microwave instructions on Pop-Tarts. Like if you can't wait for a Pop-Tart to pop out of the toaster, because the microwave instructions are like microwave on high for three seconds. Like whose breakfast is like, I can't have a five second food. I need three seconds. I already have two seconds going somewhere else. But it sounds so tempting to get the info and then never go on the vacation, never do the challenge. We'll be right back with more from John Acuff after these quick messages. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all of our amazing sponsors and discounts, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. And now for the conclusion of our interview with John Acuff. I love the noble obstacles. What can we do about these? Because again, overachievers, people with really good rational brains, these folks are, it's hard for me to disagree because they go, look, I have my week planned out in 15 minute blocks just like you do. And I've got all these things prioritized and I have a plan for my learning for the next 18 months. And on its face, it's like, man, you do have all this stuff figured out. But really, a lot of it is just this mirage, this sort of like sham. They spent three weeks planning out their entire year, but it's not gonna get done. They just made the plan, so they feel like, I'm done, now I can rest. I hired a trainer, I have to go to the gym. I hired the trainer already. No, but that's like bullet journal. Like, if you're spending more time coloring the bullet journal entry than you are doing the activity that you're writing down in the bullet journal, if you're spending an hour creating this flowery kind of visualization of your day, but then you don't actually do the day, it doesn't work. So I guess I'd say two things. One, ask the question, is it working? Like if somebody says to you, Jordan, I want to do your course, but I've already got the next 18 months planned out, then you should say, well, is your 18 months already working? Like if it's going really well, don't do the course. Like you came to this for a reason. Something's missing. Is what's missing big enough for you to carve out 20 minutes? If it's not, like it's like when people come up to me and they've done this to you, They'll say, why should I listen to your podcast? Or why should I buy your book? And I always say, maybe you shouldn't. And it surprises them because they think they're about to get this. Well, the art of Trump is the best. Like, I'd rather say, maybe you shouldn't read the free chapter online. Like, I'm not going to force you. Like, if your life needs it, then go for it. The second thing I'd say is noble obstacles or hiding spaces that I talk about. A lot of it will go there naturally. I'd ask yourself in a week, where do I go naturally with my time? So for instance, I've never met a human who accidentally or naturally just starts working out. Like I've never met somebody who's like, I sat down to watch Narcos. I ended up doing burpees. I don't even know how it happened. Like we never accidentally or naturally do things that are good for us or productive. That means we have to be deliberate. We have to be intentional. And so I would ask people who have a lot of noble obstacles, well, where are you going? And if you know you're supposed to write a book and you say, well, as soon as the garage is cleaned, what do those two have in common? Like if somebody said to me, I can't do a book until my garage is clean, I'd say, you know, most authors like Hemingway, that was his process too. He was like, first step, like go marlin fishing drunk. Second step, clean out the garage. Third step, write the book. Like that's insanity. I love the idea of, again, strategic incompetence to nip this kind of thing in the bud and picking things you can either bomb, simplify or pause and just say, look, I'm not doing this until later because it's this huge cognitive drain. And it's not forever. Your listeners right now are like, I have all these things I can't quit. Agreed, but you can ask for help. You can delegate. The simplify one, a mom I put in the book said, I can't stop feeding my kids, but I can make easy meals. Like in the biggest sham parents do is breakfast supper. Like you tell your kid you're doing breakfast supper. They're like, oh, yay. And in your head, you're like, I just have to scramble some eggs, you sucker. 
Or like my friend's mom had make your own sandwich night. You talk about a sham, like make your own sandwich. Like she's outsourcing the whole meal and the kids are like, yay, make your own sandwich. So I think that there are things you can simplify. And remember, it's for a season. You and I aren't saying, hey, quit email. Like that's dumb. Like we aren't saying stop everything you ever do. We're saying in this season, be really deliberate about what you do with your time. In the book, there's a lot of great stuff that unfortunately we don't have a lot of time for. So I want to touch on some of it. You talk about making things fun in order to reward yourself. Do you motivate yourself using fear or reward? And you go through that process. And you talk a lot about hiding places, emails, social media apps, money traps, creative energy vampires, noble obstacles being one of those. And I wanna jump back into that because you do have some types of noble obstacles that I think are quite funny, such as, okay, I need to eliminate all my distractions first, or the if then, can you go over, the if then is actually funny because we all do this and it's ridiculous when you hear someone else do it, but when we do it, it's like, well, mine makes sense. So when you read it, what was your if then? Like, did you have one that you were like, this is an example of how I would do it? Actually, this is a great one. I wanted to start working out with somebody who, and I won't name their name because I'm still friends with them, but I wanted to work out with them and I worked out a bunch and I got in really good shape. I couldn't even hold on to the pull-up bar for more than like 30 seconds. I went to being able to do 30 some odd pull-ups in like six months or a year. And I remember he had quit because I got better at him faster than he expected and he was kind of leaning on me to be the less fit guy than him in this arrangement. And I remember asking him why and he said, well, I really don't wanna get too bulky. And I remember thinking, you're at least 30 pounds overweight. If you're worried about bulk, it's not gonna happen because you're hitting the gym too hard. That's for sure. Yeah, well, so like another if then, so the if then is like, if I do this, this bad thing will happen. So I'm actually being noble preventing it. So they'll go, I'd love to start a business, but if I do, then I'll probably become a workaholic and my wife and I'll get divorced. So in order to preserve our marriage, I can't start a business I've always wanted to. And the wife is usually not going, don't start it, we'll get a divorce. Like the husband's just afraid. Or they'll say, if I start a podcast, I'll have to work on it like 900 hours a week and then I'll get fired. But yeah, the bulk up one where guys are like, I don't want to have to buy new clothes. And you're like, homie, you are like five years from new clothes. A lot of the people that listen to this show are entrepreneurs, they're marketers. They'll say, if I promote my book, then I'll become too promotional and I don't want to bother people. So I'll just hide it. And I always say, that's great. Just next time, write a diary, not a book. It's funny to me that some of my listeners, when I tweet this out, will go, I didn't know he had a podcast. That's awesome. And you on your end might think, I tell people about it all the time. Like, how do you not know? Every time I go to a city for an event, I say, I'm coming, Boston, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. And then inevitably the day after when I post a picture of the crowd, somebody goes, I wish you had told us. And I feel like I overtold. And so like you have to say, okay, do I have these weird if thens that just aren't true? Like a lot of the book is getting rid of the fake rules that really aren't honest. There is a lot of shaking off, what do you call it? Lying to ourselves is essentially what it is. Self-deception. Self-deception. Yeah, I knew there was a flashy term for it. and. I wanna make sure people don't think, oh, it's a book where I'm just gonna find out all these horrible things about myself and then feel bad, right? It's about replacing the habits. No, it's all about like, here's what to put in its place, you know? Like the fear reward thing, it's not about saying, oh, you have the wrong form of motivation. It's about going, oh, the reason it's really hard is you're a bird trying to swim. Like imagine if you were a bird flying, like that would be amazing. Like that's what I think people get out of the book is they go, for 10 years, I've been trying to be a fish. It turns out I'm a bird and I'm a pretty awesome bird. But my mom told me I was a fish. Like, hooray, now I'm finishing things. But the best part is as I tour with this book, people hand me the books they've written. 
I got a t-shirt the other night from somebody who was like, I made a t-shirt company because I learned how to finish. Like, this is my first product. Thanks for doing that. I love that. That's what's fun. Finishers make things easier and they make things simpler. That was something that I took away from the book and you hammer that home pretty well. This is an important concept because we tend to throw obstacles and hurdles in our way, as we mentioned before, and sometimes they're time-based or sometimes they're task-based, but they're always going to be something that will throw in our way, whether it's an if-then or whether it's a turning a garage cleaning into a 13-step project, and we have to figure out how to be honest with ourselves, and the book does a really good uh, example. The book does a really good job of being more honest with ourselves a lot of us, especially as entrepreneurs and things like that, we're, it's almost like we're trying to be miserable so that we feel like we're working harder, we're sticking with things we hate because it's part of this plan. One concept that I would love to hear more about is the idea that perfectionism hates data. This is kind of the perfectionism kryptonite, data and measurement. It's amazing. And the reason it hates it is that it's realistic. And we're often told like dream beyond bigger than your reality or like sometimes you got to jump off a cliff and grow your wings on the way down. I'm like that's never how gravity works. With data, you know, there's a couple different examples, but I like to say data kills denial, which prevents disaster. So for instance, I launched something recently and I thought it's going to be huge. Like we launched it to 10,000 people. I'll get X percent of sales. So few people bought it on the first day. And fortunately, my business partner said, hey, remember, we always have a small percent on the first day. The last day is really where we close strong. And if he hadn't had that data, I would have been disappointed from the results. Data is not emotional. Data is your friend. Data just wants you to make the best decision. Like I counted calories for a month and I was shocked the difference where like I'd go to a steak restaurant and I'd say, can I have horseradish? And they'd go, do you want the cream or raw? And I'd go bring both. And I'd look it up. The cream was 220 calories. Raw was seven. We like the idea that ignorance is bliss. Like I can eat whatever without consequence. But data just goes, hey, just so we're clear, like I want you to know this is what's what. And you just got to be careful. Like data didn't ruin the meal for me. The calories existed. Data just made sure I knew them. And I think entrepreneurs especially have a hard time like when an entrepreneur shows me their plan for growth and if I go, show me your sales from six months ago and they go, ah, that's, that's no, we're talking about the future, not the past. I know there's no way, like you're doomed. I see this all the time and we talk about this with some of our entrepreneur friends. We try not to be dicks about it, but basically you'll hear someone say something like, oh, well, you know, I have this, this is gonna happen and this is gonna happen and this is gonna happen and you go, okay, like you said, show me your sales data. And it's not to, this isn't a wee-wee measuring contest. It's about going, okay, you're gonna grow from what to what? We need realistic stuff here. And you know, if I ask, how do I take my show from 3.8 million to 10 million? It's a different question than someone else going, yeah, how do I get to 10 million? And you go, oh, uh, what are you at now? Well, I'm thinking of launching in three months. Okay, well, let's talk about this in eight to 10 years. Yeah, exactly. Or like, I had a friend and he said, I won't mention his name, just like your weightlifter guy. So my friend was like, Hey, I've got to rush finish my book. I won't have time for as much editing because I want to launch it at an event. And I said, well, how big is the event? He said, 400 people. I said, okay, I sell 10% of a crowd, but let's say you're twice as good at me at selling. So you're going to sell 20% of the audience. So that means 80 books. You're going to make $5 a book. So just so we're clear, you're going to release a poor quality book that you have to live with for years to make $400. So after taxes, 280 and of course, he's like, oh, I didn't like, but the data is what tells you that. Like he was emotional. Like I got to launch it big. I, I guarantee there's people that talk to you about launches. Like I really have to launch it on this certain day. And if you go, but why? 
like, what if you added a week to the timeline and it was twice as good because you were able to Q&A it? And they go, no, no, no. Like, I want it. It's got to be on this Tuesday. Like, we've been telling people. And you go, how many people did you tell? A hundred Twitter followers? Then, but why? Data tells you the truth. And I'm not a data guy naturally. Like, I've been an idiot most of my life where I will work 100% harder on my exercise and not look at my calories at all. And it wasn't until I started going, I feel like I might be shooting myself in the foot with all this queso. Like, I don't feel like this is helping. And then I looked at it and I was like, I would have to run a marathon every day to eat what I'd been eating. It's just helpful and it's simple. So how do we get started with this? What I worry about is, oh good, I need data. And then someone goes, all right, I'm gonna spend the next six months researching the type of data that I need and then I'm gonna find the best program to measure the data in and the best ways to measure it. Way one, way one to two things. Like, it'd be ironic to become a perfectionist reading a book against perfectionism. So I would say if you're at a business, find the easiest things you can measure. Numbers of times you worked out. Let's do health real quick. Numbers of times you worked out, distance you ran, what you ate, your pounds. Like pick two that are easy to measure. Always do the easiest ones first. And here's why. Once you get a little data, you get excited. Like data's contagious, dude. I guarantee you started to look at data on your downloads and stuff like that. And then you and your producer are like, dude, if we do better with two forms of data, imagine what would happen if we had four. Start with small, let it grow. Like I guarantee you didn't do a deep data dive right away, but now, dude, it's fun. Like once you get a taste, you get hooked on data. So start small. If it's your business, measure revenue, expenses, the obvious things. I would beg you, beg you, beg you, don't invent new forms of data. Don't try to do 10 forms of data. You'll cripple yourself. You'll hate it from the beginning. Fall in love with one or two forms and make better decisions with it and then grow it over time. I can relate this to podcasting quite easily. There are a lot of people, since we're on the subject, I'm not obsessed with this topic, I swear, but they'll start their show and they'll go, 100 downloads, this is great. Everybody's gotta start somewhere. The next week, 200 downloads, this is amazing. At this rate, we're gonna be at 100,000 downloads at X number of months, and then week three, it's like 212 downloads, and they're like, oh, and then the week after that, it's, well, our feature expired, and then you know we saw stop the promo blitz, so it's at 175, and then the next week after that, it's 150, and they go, yeah, screw this. Whereas the difference was, I have a love-hate relationship with this particular story and this particular idea, which is we didn't really pay any attention other than maybe a quarterly check of our download stats for the first five or six years with the podcast because it didn't matter that much because we were gonna do it anyway. I wish I'd started looking at it and measuring more things earlier and paying attention to that stuff because it would have helped to grow the business. On the other hand, I might have also quit. Looking at the historical data, there were enormous dips. And I'm talking haircuts of 30% where I go, I don't even know why that happened. And yeah, maybe we could have avoided a repeat or I could have just gone, eh, nobody's listening to this anymore and quit, which is very likely. But I would say like, especially at the beginning, your data should lead to better decisions, not more shame. So if you find yourself measuring something that makes you hate what you're doing, it's the wrong thing to measure. Like the goal of data is to provide you with information so you can make amazing decisions. You know, you find the points of data that you go, okay, when I do this thing, it's so much better for me. When I know this or when I tweet at this time or when I focus on this one thing, it's so much better for me. There's part of me that, Jordan, I wish you had done data early because to the person that gets discouraged at the beginning, you know, I would love for you to have like 10 truths about starting a podcast nobody tells you. And you say like, just so we're clear, my data hung around this level for six months. Like, and maybe you already have that product. If you already have that product, awesome. If you don't, like you're in a position to say to that person, 10 things you don't want to hear about podcasting, but will save your life. And you go, 
month four will feel like this. And I know because here's what happened in my month four. That's part of it. Because the problem with the person you described, the fictional person is they never reach out. That's the other thing about your emotions. Your emotions and perfectionism go, you're the only podcaster that ever saw a dip in the third month. And this is indicative that it's time to quit. Most people won't go, I'm going to shoot a podcast guy I like a question and he's going to respond back and go, welcome to the party. Here's an example. My daughter's 14. She started an Instagram page. She just started a photo-based one. She's got a new camera. She wants to do photography. She invited her friends from the one page to join the others. She said, Dad, 100 people saw it. Only one followed me. And I got to say to her, welcome to social media. There's so many authors I know that go, I'm speaking to 100 people today, probably sell 80 books. And I'm like, that's adorable. You think 80% of the crowd is going to do that? Or like, I got an email list of 10,000 people, probably have like 9,000 open it, maybe 8,000 click through. And you're like, yeah, 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 dude. That's what we're all doing. It's definitely not going to be 30 people clicking through. This is no lie. I had somebody send out an email for 150,000 people. It wasn't my list. It was somebody else's list. And I was like, dude, how many books did it sell? He said seven. And I was like, like 700? And he was like, no, seven, as in one more than six, one less than eight. Yeah, that's scary, actually, all those stats there. I want to wrap with this, though, because I love the meta and the zoom out. When people aren't finishing something, a lot of it's perfectionism, a lot of it is what we're mentioning here. But I think the unasked question is, what value are we getting out of not finishing? Because at some level, quitting, not finishing, leaving things on the table has to outweigh the value of actually finishing. I think that sometimes people, if they are honest, would say, by not finishing, I never have to get criticized. You know, Jordan, if I work on a book for 10 years and I never publish it, I never have random strangers on the internet tell me I'm dumb. That's the thing. There's this great section from um, Chaucer, and it's a story of this guy who builds a boat. And he builds boats. He's amazing. But he always tears them apart at the last second. And they go, why does he do that? And they say, well, he's afraid of the water. Like, And if he finishes the boat, he actually has to get in and go out into the water, and it terrifies him. If you're afraid of criticism, you'll almost launch a podcast. You'll almost write a book. You'll almost start a business. But then right at the last second, you won't. So that's part of it. Part of it is if you're always working on it, people will give you credit for being like, what you know, you're such a hard worker and you never actually have to produce. Or sometimes what people get out of not finishing is they look noble to the people. So they go, I just, you know, I don't want to be so busy. So I just kind of accept this small life. And people go, you're such a good dad. And they don't realize you're teaching your kid you shouldn't chase your dreams. If you've been struggling with something for a while, you owe it to yourself to ask that question and be kind to yourself with the answer. Like the answer isn't designed to make you feel like, I knew I was a loser. That's what I'm getting out of it is I get to be a loser. The question is designed to give you some information that you can then operate on. John, thank you so much. Brilliant. I love it. The book, Finish, Give Yourself the Gift of Done. Really good, funny. It's a lot like this podcast, only I'm not there, so it's not hilarious, but it's funny. It's East Coast hilarious. You're on the West Coast. Things are a little different out there. Yeah, we're a little more subdued with it. Oh, yeah, that's what they've said about the West Coast. I'm in Nashville. They say Nashville's crazy. West Coast, subdued. That's always been the going. <laughs> sure. Yeah, sure, that's it. That's how we do things here. Jason, this was a great episode. John's a funny guy. Obviously, this book is gonna be funny. There's a lot we left out as well that's included in the book. This is a guy who's very self-aware and knows how to get himself to do stuff like write three best-selling books. So I'm, uh, I'm inclined to trust him. And what's really funny about the examples here is I don't care who you are. When you read these, you go, oh yeah, I've done that. Oh, I've done that. Oh, there's a system for this. I mean, it's just, it's almost universal. I think especially among overachievers, 
like many of the people who listen to The Art of Charm. I was cringing the entire episode because every single one of those I can point to as a reason why my podcasting course is not yet live. Yeah. It was like a checklist. I'm like, okay, I got to fix that. Okay, I got to fix that. Okay, I got to fix that. And I'm trying not to procrastinate by going and reading his book first because I think I got everything I need from listening to the episode, but I'm definitely going to check out the book. He's fantastic, and it was some amazing advice. Yeah, that podcasting course, man, you know, doesn't have to I be perfect. Get on it. Get and, on well, it. that's the problem. That's the first one. I'm like, I can't put anything out that's not like top notch, man. I got my reputation to protect. No, I don't. Just put it out there. You don't have a reputation. No. Yeah, there's nothing to protect. <laughs> we can we can fix it later on down the line. Don't worry. We'll fix it in post. That's what we exactly. always say here on the show. <laughs> yep. Great big thank you to John Acuff. The book title is Finish. Give yourself the gift of done. Of course, that'll be linked up in the show notes for this episode. And if you enjoyed this one, which I know you did, don't forget to thank John on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes here as well. Tweet at me your number one takeaway from John. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter, and you can find the show notes, as always, for this episode at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. And if you want to apply some of the things you're learning here on the show in your real life and you're not sure where to start or you're sure where to start but you want more, join us in the AOC Challenge. We've got this challenge set up where we break this stuff down into bite-sized pieces, theartofcharm.com slash challenge. You can also text the letters AOC, that's A-O-C, to the number 38470. The challenge is about improving your networking skills, applying the things you're learning on the show, improving those relationship skills, and putting them into play, into practice. It's free, it's unisex, it's all online, it's a minimal time commitment, it's designed to get you off your keister. We'll also send you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier in the show that includes a lot of great stuff, practicals, ready to apply right out of the box. Listen to it, use it right away. Body language, charismatic nonverbal communication, persuasion, influence, networking, negotiation, the science of attraction, everything else that we teach here on the show and at The Art of Charm. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker for that matter. That's all at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text AOC to the number 38470. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website, those are by Robert Fogarty. Theme music by Little People. Transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. If you can think of anyone who might benefit from the episode you've just heard, and I know you can, please pay AOC, and myself for that matter, the highest compliment, and pay it forward by sharing this episode with that person. Come on, it only takes a minute, not even a minute, a moment even, and great ideas are meant to be shared. So share the show with your friends and your enemies, stay charming, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.